Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello and welcome to another episode in this musical journey like no other, giving music fans an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins album, Autumn. This is episode two of 33, your new favorite music podcast. Every episode features a world premiere of a new song. And on every episode of 33, we're going to break down that song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman, Billy Corgan. We're not only breaking down the songs, we're going to go deep into the story, into the lyrics, the melody, the connections to past albums, and the connections to the world we all share. Every episode is a world premiere. That's why you got to catch every single episode of 33. We're also going to be giving you exclusive insights to previous hits, B-sides, fan-favorite tracks from Billy Corgan's catalog. You can expect to not only hear deep and entertaining conversation, but also interviews with musicians, artists, and people who have influenced the new album, Autumn, and much, much more. I'm Joe Galley, one of your hosts for 33. On this episode, we'll be listening to a beautiful song called Butterfly Sweet, as well as the song I, which was featured on the soundtrack of the 1997 film Lost Highway. We're also going to be welcoming sound engineer producer, musician, and great friend to Billy Corgan, Tommy Lipnick. He'll be coming on later in this program. Also joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. Joe, you just nailed everything that needed to be done there. I'm sorry about that. The dog's barking in the background, but we're also going to have all sorts of stuff on here. The music, the Spotify playlists. If you want more information about the songs we're doing, including lyrics and everything of the sort, go to WPC33.com. It's going to be everything that is 33, but that's enough for me. Because you're here for one reason and one reason alone. William Patrick Corgan, the frontman of the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy, how you I love doing that today? The dog's so excited. My puppy loves you. We we try to start early with the fandom. I'm great. Thank you. Um happy to be here. And uh today we're gonna be taking a deep dive into this new song called Butterfly Sweet, which is the part two of the thirty-three chapters of uh, the Autumn album. As I said in the first podcast, if you have or haven't heard it. Every song represents a part of this particular journey and this story that I've mapped out. It is the sequel to Melancholy from 1995 and also Machina from 2000. So here we are in the third chapter, and this is actually the first song of the musical that where action starts to take place. 
I have to say, in listening to the song, we were able to hear it just before. And fans, you're going to be hearing it in just a few minutes on this podcast. But, I mean, it's just so beautiful in the flow that you have there. And it almost, you get that feeling like you're you're floating in space. And I feel like it could totally fit into one of these sci-fi, you know, we are, we're going to talk about the tie-in with I being a part of a movie as well from 1997. But, like, this feels like it could be plugged into anything that's being made today as a major motion picture. I agree with you on completely on that. I'm waiting for the Netflix just mini series to come out with all this stuff. So if anybody's loving this, make sure one day we're going to sell the rights to that Billy for you. We're going to make that stuff happen. But uh, one of the things that really struck me about it is, you know, interpretation. You've got this whole concept of where this is going. And I, I need you to paint the picture for the listener. They're going to hear this. Do you want to give them a little sampling of where their mind should be taking them as they're listening? Or do you just want to leave it open to their interpretation? No, that's what we're here to do. I actually want to explain for the first time the story behind the songs, particularly in this instance, because it is a musical. Every song is written and every lyric is written to the narrative form, uh, which is a kind of a challenge. If you're just writing about yourself and you're having a funny day, you can write about your funny day. In this particular instance, with every song and every lyric pushing forward the narrative of the story of Autumn and the lead character, Shiny, this song is critical because this is the first song where action takes place. The theme, Autumn, is just basically to set the mood. Here now we open up on two spaceships, one to the left and one to the right. This is the picture in my mind as I was working on the musical. In the left spaceship, at a very vast distance from the right one, you have Shiny, who's been exiled into space. And in the right, you have June, who, unbeknownst to Shiny, and because she sort of had financial independence, was able to arrange through bribes to put herself into space next to Shiny. But they're at a distance. He doesn't know who's over there other than occasionally little origami sort of birds come floating past the spaceship. So he knows somebody is sort of being nice. Uh, he has no idea that this person on the right, if you can picture it in your mind, uh, knows who's in the spaceship on the left. So every morning, because she's in love with Shiny and has been in love with Shiny most of her adult life, Shiny is sort of her god or her uh, muse or her uh, man or however she wants to quantify it in her mind. Is she a groupie? Is she a fan? Is she somebody that has a sense of destiny? It doesn't really matter at this point in the story. And so on, on this particular morning, like many other, they've been in space for a very long time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years. June gets up and sings her love song to Shiny every morning, and Butterfly Sweet is that love song. And it, it addresses how she feels about him and how she's basically sacrificed her the rest of her adult life to be near him in a sort of form of uh, loyalty and fidelity. She's placed herself in space, given up her life on Earth to be next to him. And so in the middle of the song, kind of where the song breaks down, unbeknownst to her, uh, Shiny punches in a code. Everybody who gets put into space has a particular code that allows their ship to break orbit and float off towards the sun in kind of an honorable suicide, which in the story is called the March of Life. So as she's singing her daily love song, kind of a Oklahoma kind of I love shiny type of song, it's got a little bit of a wink in it when you hear the song. It's not meant to be overly serious, although it is a pretty song. Uh, and it has a sort of disassociative quality, which feeds into the narrative here. In the middle of her singing this paean to shiny, unbeknownst to her, because she can only see the ship floating in space, shiny punches in the coat and the ship floats off towards the sun. And, and immediately she recognizes that she's lost him that he has taken the march of life, that he is now on this inevitable march towards the sun where he will be burned up and be killed. And she doesn't know what to do. And so the last part of the song is her grappling with the feeling that her worst fears have come to the fore, but yet because of her sense of destiny, she feels like she must do something. It's, it's incredible the way that you're able to paint what essentially could be you know, a narrative that would fit in a miniseries into a three-minute song. Yes, 
And also in my mind, and I, this is just how, you know, my mind was working and I'm listening to the song and there's spaceships and stuff flying through air. The spaceships that I picture in my head are very, you know, late 80s prog rock looking sort of things flying through space. And so I'm just kind of trying to figure out exactly what you're seeing is in your mind as to what the structures are that are there and the, the way shiny looks and the things that are there. Cause in my mind, I guess it's so animated and it kind of ties into things that I've loved in the, the media that I've ingested sure. throughout my years here. But so what's love, going through in your mind? I love that you asked this like? because actually you don't see shine in the musical to way later in the story. Uh, I might be giving a little bit away, but I guess it's a movie. So you should expect that. Um, no, you don't actually see shiny. All you see is a ship and you see June singing to shiny over in his ship. And again, She's at a distance and he's at a distance that they can actually see each other. They can see the craft. Um, each craft is sort of a single person, beautifully designed kind of art deco of the future uh, spacecraft. And, uh, and that's basically their living prison cell. It's very comfortable. They have a nice life in them, but they've been exiled. In Shiny's case, he's been put there because he's dangerous to whoever controls the, the earth or, you know, the things that go on. You can, do, you can do the math on the order of the earth, right? And in her case, she's put herself there willingly. She's imprisoned herself in her own version of this jail, only to be close to the man that she loves. So you actually, all you see in the beginning of the movie, beyond the sort of intro, which I describe in, in episode one, is now we come up on the two spaceships floating side by side. And as June gets on top of her craft, you sort of think Oklahoma, right? Something like that, like a Rogers Hammerstein. In the movie, she could maybe get up on top of the craft. It doesn't make any sense because obviously there's no oxygen in space. Or she just sings out her window. It sort of doesn't matter. You can play it as cutesy as you want. But the fact of the matter is she gets up every morning and there is no morning because in space, the sun never sets. In her morning, she sings to the man she loves. And as she's in the middle of this beautiful kind of ode that she sings every morning, how much I love you. Shiny is her butterfly that she's chased into the heavens. He punches in the march of life. You actually don't see it. All you see is a ship breaking away. And symbolically, she immediately knows what he's done. There's no question in her mind that he's made the decision on that particular morning to kill himself. Now, because of the way the march of life works, it takes a while for the ship actually to float into the sun. So it's not an immediate death. And at Earth, the population is sold that the march of life is sort of an honorable way to end your existence in space. So there's nothing dishonorable about it, uh, sort of fundamentally, psychologically, but certainly Shiny has had enough. He's been in space for 20 years. He wakes up on that particular morning. He says, I'm done. Boom, he punches in the coat and off he floats. And the science nerd in me has just kind of been awakened when you bring that up, that this beautiful song is sung, but Shiny probably never hears it. Space is a vacuum. How can the sound travel from one ship to another? I don't know if this is where your mind was at, but just in the way that you're describing it is maybe there's been this beautiful song that's happened every Earth Day, every Earth Dawn in space, but it never really gets to be heard well, by anyone else. speaking personally, I've had the experience literally thousands of times where people will stop me and say, you don't know what your song did for me. You got me through this super difficult time. You gave me the courage to ask the person I love to marry me. You gave me the courage to come out because I was, you know, afraid to tell people about my sexuality. You gave me the courage to tell my family about who I loved and that I've been in a relationship, a same-sex relationship with somebody three years. I've heard thousands of these stories, and it always blows my mind the influence that my music has, because music is like a ray, right? A wave, you want to talk science. Well, it floats out into space on some level. So where our music goes and what it penetrates lovingly, <laughs> um, we, we're really unaware 99% of our influence on people, we're completely unaware of that influence on others. 
And so I think it's very similar. In essence, she's trying to return the love that Shiny has given her through his music. She's trying to make it very personal, and he's completely unaware because he kind of lives in his own little digital mountaintop and has for years. And the minute he got exiled, of course, he lost all connection to his influence as an artist and as a person on the planet. You know, we've, we've talked about that. These characters are not quite you, but kind of maybe a facet of something that you're trying to convey or you're feeling at the moment. Is, is there something that speaks volumes to you about having somebody who might never realize how appreciated they are just looking one day and saying, I guess that's all I've said and it's time to end that story? I don't really know because um, I've had people through my life say, I have a sense of destiny with you or I listen to your song and I have to talk to you. I mean, it's gone from everything from very sweet to very dangerous. So I have a very disassociative relationship with others' interpretations of me, um, not just the public personality, but how my music sort of speaks to them in a particular way that they feel they have to communicate that back with me. The easy version is somebody stops you and says, hey, I love the music you've made. It's inspired me. Like, that's easy. That's easy to like, it's like chewing on a cracker. It's like, feels good, great. When it gets more complicated, like, I did this because of you. And now because I did this, I feel I've got to tell you. And then I want you to react. And if you don't react in a certain way, I feel like you're almost disrespecting me. That's where it gets super complicated. So I'm not trying to overly foreshadow the story, but let's just say on the surface, this is a very complicated relationship between two people who do not know each other. She has a very intense relationship with Shiny that he is completely unaware of. And on some level, he has engendered that type of response. So in that way, he does have a relationship with her, even though he does not know her. So in a way, it's kind of an abstract kind of song about fandom? You can take it however you want. To foreshadow a little bit, you got to see how the story plays out to know whether her sense of destiny has any meaning. I'm excited to hear this. I'm excited to experience this. I'm excited for everything that is autumn. And I, I just got to ask, I, I, I want to know this for go. myself and other people want to know. Kyle's going to Kyle. Uh, Egyptian God, same name, kind of considered the beginning and the end. Any sort of foreshadowing in the title. you've been Googling, Kyle. I'm very proud of you. I him. have been Googling. It's a wealth of information. Um, Thank you. You know, I have an interesting relationship with words and their meanings. I do believe that the meaning of words, the etymology of words, the, the actual phonetics of words is super powerful. Uh, some people believe that magicians cast spells. I'm not here to necessarily espouse that at this particular moment, but let's put it this way. If you go back to Sanskrit language, which is about 7,000 years ago, if my memory serves me correct, one of the words in Sanskrit was wa, W-A. And what does that word mean? Water. Why are we still using wa with water 7,000 years later? There's something about that, that that sort of resonates in a human being. You know, I mean, the sound of wa to water still translates. So whether or not a particular word translates into my own particular meaning is less important that the feeling of the word translates. And on that note, we're going to keep things moving right along. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back right after this break, it'll be the world premiere of Butterfly Suite. Stay tuned. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. Welcome back. William Patrick Corgan here on the 33 Podcast. This is very exciting. Another world premiere. The Butterfly Suite, the second song on the Autumn album, but the first song with a vocal. This is a really cool kind of winky song. I hope you get it. If you don't, well, we can talk about it later. This is the Butterfly Suite. Please enjoy. Who sweeps the squalid rain to scan through pinks and gray? I laughed without escape above a frightened race. Touch with wanderlust, a town of others dust. It settled on the first run. It's morning, girl. Good morning. Good morning to you, son. Don't ever set on island. This island has begun.
What a beautiful song that was. Butterfly Sweet. You heard it here first, right here on 33. And now we're going to welcome sound engineer, producer, musician, and friend of Billy's, Tommy Lipnick, to the program. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. 28 years I've known you, Tommy. And the reason I wanted you to have you on to this uh, show today for our second episode is because you're probably one of the only people that was actually at the Melancholy Sessions, the Machina Sessions, and also the Autumn Session. So you've spanned all three concept albums that the Smashing Pumpkins have made. So let's start here. Uh, when I first talked to you about doing another concept album, the third in the trilogy, uh, give me a sense of what your first thought was. In terms of me? Yeah, you're the guest, buddy. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, I'm loving this so far. This is perfect. Well, the banter. You, oh, you, you guys all have headphones, and, and I'm doing it on a freaking iPad. Well, you are calling from Pakistan. Yes. you know, um, I've, I've always thought that you had a vision much bigger that you never finished. And so I thought that this is, uh, you know, another installment, if you will, you explained this to me, whatever, 25 years ago about your installment or your series of records and visuals that went with this. And I don't think that they ever were finished. And I think we're getting to a better point, a better position in the story now. If you well, will. it's funny that you mentioned that because part of the thing was when we did our first concept album, which was melancholy, I didn't want to talk about the concept much because we were under such duress from the press and seemed like every word that came out of my mouth I was sort of being attacked by. So my way of dealing with fame at that point was to become this character zero and sort of hide behind the veneer of shaving my head, sort of neutralizing my public personality. And strangely enough, of course, going backwards in one way on the persona, the band seemed to get bigger and I became more well-known for being a weirdo. So I never really had to totally explain the concept I tried to explain the concept to a certain degree on the Machine album, which was much more about the band falling apart, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. And so this is really the first time of the three concept records, uh, 95, 2000, and now 2022, where I'm actually going to explain the process, the way the record was made, and also the thematic concepts behind it. Let's go back real quick to Melancholy, because you were there. Um, was you, did you have a sense then that I was making something conceptual? I don't remember if I talked to you about it at the time. No, funny you were just saying that. I was I was thinking about that, and and I can actually remember we at towards the end, um, we were all sitting around one night, you and I, and I think Flood maybe, and you just said, had finally 
had showed me some sketches and some ideas about where it went next, which then came Machina and everything. So you, it, it was right at the end of Melancholy. You hadn't fleshed out the idea to me before the end of it. And then how it's- I love the fact, guys, that you have basically created this trilogy. And the fact of the matter is, at the beginning, I was a fan of the music back in the day, and I never realized it was a concept album. I just thought it was a bunch of songs that hit me on the feelings that I felt and everything like that. Then I hear that there's a second part, obviously, and here we're in part three. It, looking at the time, Tommy, is this where you thought the story was going to go? Did Billy ever share, like, so part three, you know, all those years ago, I know exactly the end goal here. Um. I- Yes, I, I didn't think it would take quite so long. I thought it would come a little more rapidly, you know, one and then maybe another record, then then the second part, then the third. I didn't think it would take whatever it's been twenty five years to get to part three, but it, it was um, a very interesting thing because once again the time and the pressure and record company and MTV and all that crap was happening in ninety four, whatever ninety three, um, and so all of a sudden. I actually, I remember BC when you were telling me about it, wanted to go right into Machina and there was issues with business and stuff and releasing it for free and this, that, and the other, and went right in and started recording. Uh, and I think that's right around Howard was there at the Riviera. Um, and just started recording the second part. And then he finally explained to me the whole story. And I, I thought we wouldn't be 25 years from now. I thought we'd be five years from now. Or five years from- well, when the band broke up, I mean, that pretty much ended, in my, in my mind, that ended the, the concept that it would ever kind of get a third act. I love doing the concept records. I know it's sort of obscure to people, but that's also part of the point of the podcast is actually explaining all this work because it's antithetical on one level to a pop rock career, right? Pop rock career, you just want to make the best catchy songs, get on the radio, have a bunch of people show up and wave their lighters to do work that's more like a movie or a movie soundtrack for a set of characters which are not wholly explained is very, very confusing to the public. So I understand that. I guess that's why I'm sort of, I wanted to have you on as guest is because you were actually in the room when these records were being made. How much of a sense did you have that I was going after characters, in essence, playing someone different than myself on the public side of things? Interesting. Uh, Well, the the point is knowing you so well as a person, um, I don't think people realize that Zero was a character and you got a lot of heat and all that nonsense going on at the time. But then when you fleshed out the idea to me, the whole thing made sense. Um, and that's where Machina 1 and Machina 2 and the Glass and the Ghost Children, you know, all those other things that sort of everyone knows about now. But at the time, I think um, uh, everyone agrees, as you just said, uh, that they just thought it was a pop record. And I remember you and I talking about 1979. And just uh, how does that fit in the whole thing? And you said, oh, you just like that because it sounds like New Order. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, I, it's I, a good I, compliment. I, yeah, believe it. For us, yes. Um, and it was just one of those things that it, it, it all made sense to me being there. But if you just took it, if you took it in pieces as singles, as the way the music industry used to be, none of it made sense. It, it was a cohesive piece of work I could see coming together. But I don't think the public really got it. Maybe some of the super fans, because I remember the Machina, the free pressing was just like, you know, priceless if you could get your hands on one. So there were some people that were understanding it and understanding that it was more than one record, two, three, four. Uh, but I think the public missed the whole boat. 
This is slightly indulgent, but I think it's interesting in this particular forum being public. Two things. So I'm going to ask you the first one, then there's a follow-up. The first question is, so there's the character of Zero, and then five years later, there was the character of Glass. And now 20-something years later, we have the character of Shiny in the new record. The characters that I've played in public, I've tried to explain to people through the years that I'm actually not those characters. But you actually know the person that I really am. Uh, You're godfather to my son, Augustus. You know, you know my family, you knew my father. Heck, you even knew my mother you know, who's passed away now for, geez, 20-something years, right? 27 years? 20, Actually, today, the, yeah. the, the day we're recording this would have been her 75th birthday. So uh, God bless my mother. So the indulgent question is, how different am I, the person that you know, versus what the public perceives me to be vis-a-vis through these characters? Uh, pretty much polar opposite. People don't understand your humor. Um, they don't understand you're a normal guy that loves baseball. And they... they they really, I, it's maybe a testament to the depth of the characters, but the people really believe you are these characters. And, and I think that, you know, when people meet you in person, especially friends of mine that haven't met you over the last three decades, they're like, oh, wow, Billy's a lot nicer than I read. <laughs> and I'm guilty of this. Yeah. I am. I am definitely guilty of this. Billy can tell the story. I met him. He's got a zero gear from head to toe. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, Kyle, shoot. And I said, uh, is this just something you had personally made for yourself? Or is this like promotion? What? And he looked at me and he goes, do you think I'm a... <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I, I, you're a rock star. You're not a guy to me. You're not a normal human being. I don't understand you. And he goes, Kyle, it's a promote an album. I, I'm a normal person. Why would you, why would you even think that? So you're right. I, I am. I work with the man. I'm guilty of it every day going, oh, shit. I mean, he's not Kyle, what I expected. You're not supposed to curse on my podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, the, the funny thing is that people would think that, you know, it would be this incredible, you know, work being done every day. Then back then, I'm, I'm not a vegan, but back then, uh, Billy and I would go to Demon Dogs, which was a, a very legendary, famous spot in Chicago and just hang out and talk and uh, very, very normal. But people, I think it's, you know, it's a misconception. It's a maybe people want to read into it, but it's just not him. He's been my best friend most of my slight, life. Slight diversion then on the question, because you've become friends with and know some of the biggest musicians in the world. Uh, we don't have to name drop, but you would certainly know a lot of Tommy's friends. You see, I'm, I'm giving you a little. A little. Uh, the, the public can't see what you're doing. This is a podcast. Uh, uh, oh, that. <laughs> it's it's not a visual medium. Let's establish that now. But real quick, do you, do you think the public, because they're desirous of people, in essence, being larger than life, that the personalities that you know either adapt that as their personality or they really are larger than life. And I'm just a weird, normal person who sort of stumbled into something bigger than myself. What's your sense of that? That's a really actually good question because most people, you know, we grew up on Bowie and for example, Jane's Addiction, New Order. I think those, especially, you know, sadly, Ian Curtis, who's no longer with us, he succumbed to being Ian Curtis of Joy Division and it, he couldn't take it, and he ultimately took his own life. But I think that a lot of people are, it, it basically falls into two categories, from um, people that are a complete persona on stage, and then they turn it off when they come on stage. And I, I know some people, I lived in Las Vegas for a while, and some people that are from there that have done very, very well, um, they can walk out of a stadium with the crowd, and nobody knows who they are. Um, I don't know if it's it's because of what has happened. Um, you know, the public's understanding of Billy, shall I say, or 
something along those lines. Um, I tell you one thing, six five, he cannot do that. But you find guys that play to you know fifty thousand people and just walk out, you know, without luggage and nobody cares. It, it, a lot of people seem to, uh, and then you see it a lot in the business with some some friends of both of ours that the character or the person they play consumes them, and they have to try and live up to that you know that life of uh, excess or whatever or you know opulence, and it just doesn't work for them. And uh, Billy, I think, is a good balance between the two. All right. Here's my other indulgent question, because you really are one of the only people on this planet that's actually been in the room with the band over various eras. Not only the band in rehearsal, the band on stage, but also how the band works and records. I'm going to toss this to you as an open question. I'm really curious for the answer. What is your perception of the way the band actually works in terms of the recording environment? Can you take people into the room because you've actually been there for countless hours? Um, it's interesting. I think it's like from, from other people that I've worked with and or seen witnessed, I think it's different in the way that it's a lot more collaborative than, you know, a lot of people give you a lot of grief or used to, or still do that you do everything, which is in one sense, true one sense, not, but I think what you, your basic your real talent is throwing everything against the wall and finding the best parts. So the band, you guys spend hours and hours working on things in the old days. I think it's changed now. It was more of a band scenario before and able to sort of distill the best parts of that out and then continue to focus on those bits. And actually, I think that that's something, you know, the riffs and the things that we just did in Nashville is very similar to that. But it's one. It's a lot of people just get songs. One guy brings in a song, and then that's the way it is, and you just record it, edit it. I think that it's more of a give and take between everyone. And then I, you're really more of a producer and songwriter than just a songwriter, because you see the bigger picture. You can pick something out of you know in the old days, for example, one a riff that James had and a lick that Jimmy played in, you know, something and, and reverse those, put them together. And then you have what you end up hearing on the record. I don't think a lot of other people work like that. It, it's, you know, it's either everybody, you're, it's kind of like, uh, what do they call it? Orchestra leader. Um, you're able to find the parts that are good and then continue to push in that direction. Okay, last bit, we're a little tight on time, but, you know, I have taken a certain amount of grief through the years for avoiding the guitar at times and focusing on the synthesizer. So truth be told, my obsession or possession with the synthesizer started with you, and it actually dovetails into the song that we're going to play as the sort of classic song for the day, which is I, which you were also in the room for the day I recorded it by myself. Uh, in that particular instance, and of course we'll play the song in a minute, I did the song completely by myself because the band was all away, everybody was away on holiday, and I had to turn the song in for a movie soundtrack. And so Tommy brought a bunch of vintage synths into the studio, so this is the first time I ever worked with really, truly vintage synths, and together we put that track together in one day, and so what you hear is the result of me and Tommy working on that one day. But talk really quickly about uh, your love of synthesizers and how it sort of fed into what became such a critical part of the Smashing Pumpkin sound. Well, I think the most interesting thing is is the balance between Billy's love of, uh, you know, metal and hard rock and then also a love of, uh, you know, older 80s synth stuff. And I happen to be a big vintage, a vintage synth fan. 
And I had a thing, if you remember BC, called Synthosaurus. I had this giant rack with basically one of every synth made into a rack. And it was just like handing, it, it was like handing a kid candy. He just poked in one and poked in the other. And what is this one? And is this one a wave synth? This one's analog. This one's digital. And we just sat there and played with it. And it, and it became so seamlessly molded in and woven through the guitar parts that it really brought a whole new sound out. And it just like, it was experimental, just like throw. It's like, it's like throwing BC, throwing you a different tuning guitar and see what you come up with. So it's your fault. You That's put, the point. I just wanted you on the public record. The, the synthesizer yeah, part of the yeah. Smashing Pumpkins is your fault. I thought that's where this was going, that love it or leave it, the Smashing Pumpkins fans were going to blame you for this, whether they love it or hate it. That's fine. As, as long as they buy me some more cents. Cool. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for joining us on this portion of the podcast. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to and breaking down the song I featured in the soundtrack for the 1997 film Lost Highway. Stay tuned. This is 33. We'll be right back. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to I, featured in the 1997 David Lynch film Lost Highway, starring Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette. You can rent the film on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play right now. The song was also featured on the Rotten Apple's Greatest Hits compilation that was released in November of 2001. Billy, tell me a little bit about how this song got into this movie, and tell me anything you can about David Lynch, because I am obsessed with his well, entire here, Let's work. take one quick step back. Isn't it funny that Patricia Arquette was in that movie, and yet here in the NWA, our wrestling company, we work with David Arquette, we just saw the other day during our taping. So we have this weird six degrees of separation with the Arquette family, both in wrestling and, and the movie. Um, I got a call. Somebody said, David Lynch wants to talk to you about putting a song in this movie. Howard Willing, the producer of the new album, Autumn, was there that day, and I was working on the, the Door album. And so I sent a song from that album that I was working on called Tear or Tear. I can never make up my mind how to pronounce it. Well, first I met with David Lynch at his house. And he told me what he was looking for. So then I sent him the song. And then about a week later, they said he wants to talk to you. And I kind of got the feeling it wasn't going that well. And I do a very bad David Lynch impression. But he goes, uh, Billy, that's just not going to work. And uh, <laughs> he didn't like the song at all. Were you a David Lynch fan going into this, by the way? I don't remember when Blue Velvet came out, but I, I remember seeing it in the theater and thinking, like, obviously this was a new visionary, and that's been proven out over time. And David's a lovely person, really easy to communicate with, certainly a fantastic artist. So I didn't want to disappoint him, and I certainly wanted my song in a David Lynch movie. So now I'm scrambling because now I need a fresh idea because everything else I have is sort of tabled for the Door album. So I had been, um, I was with a music publishing company, which was, I believe, Virgin Music Publishing. Uh, Chrysalis, sorry. It was Chrysalis Music Publishing. And I'd signed a big deal. And as part of the big deal, they would try to put you in collaborations with things. So one day this guy called, uh, his name was Tom Sturgis, who happened to be the son of Preston Sturgis, who's one of the most famous screenwriters in Hollywood history. And Tom had certainly gotten a lot of his father's intelligence, was really a really brainy guy, saw something in me very early on. So I'm forever in his debt. Anyway, Tom calls me and says, would you be open to working with Shaquille O'Neal? Now, Shaquille O'Neal at this point is one of the biggest stars in the NBA and obviously still a massive star. And he was putting out rap records. And I was a huge fan. I used to go to Bulls games all the time. So I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of a fun thing. And so I sat down at this rickety piano that I had in New York when I was living there. And I'd written this little riff thinking of like kind of, I don't know, Dr. Dre or something like, like something that would kind of loop really well, like a SoCal kind of a cool Dr. Dre kind of under melody type of thing. And I wrote the melody and I, so I, I felt good. Okay, now I've got something. So when I call Shaquille and Neil on the phone, uh, I can at least say I've got something and I'm coming to, into a situation sort of prepared. Um, that seemed to me to be professional. So I called Shaquille and Neil on the phone and it sounded like there was a party going on like behind him. Like there's something about there's like 500 people and I can't do a good Shaq impression, but the conversation went something like this. Hey, what's up? I explained who I am. Yeah, I, I heard about this. Uh, I said, is this something you want to do with me? You know, I'm in this band. And he's like, yeah, sort of. Why don't you come down to Orlando? And just this, the whole sensation of talking to him and getting the sense he didn't know who the heck I was. And I was probably walking in not as somebody who's on MTV 18 times a week, but somebody that he's not really aware of. And it seemed to me that was not going to be a good situation because I'd been in other situations like that prior. And that's not to cast any shade on Shaquille. He was uh, lovely to talk to. It was more a sense of like, if you go into a situation, somebody doesn't really know who you are, you might as well just be a guy who walks in off the street. So the chance of it being successful in my mind at that particular moment, and I was certainly more immature than I am now, I thought, well, this is probably not going to work. What did that feel like, by the way, to have Shaquille O'Neal just treat you like a normal human being after who you no, are? No, it, was, it wasn't, rock star. I wasn't insulted or anything. It was more the sense of like, look, 
if he knows me as a musician and has a sense that I've got something in my pocket that might be valuable to him, it's situations like that. If you present somebody an idea and they don't get it right away, well, they're going to go back to what they know, which is their own instinct. If you have a little bit of credibility coming in the room, they might be more willing to give you an opportunity to sort of prove them right or wrong. In my experience in working with people prior to that was if they didn't know who I was and didn't understand what I did being kind of a little bit more from left field, the chances of it working were very, very small. So now I'm looking at having to get on a plane, go somewhere to hang out with obviously a huge, huge star. I'm not sure how much time I'm going to get. Am I going to end up working in a studio by myself? I'd had other strange experiences with people in the music business along this line where I sort of innocently, naively kind of jumped into a situation and kind of blew up in my face. So whatever about the conversation sort of made me think, okay, this isn't going to work. Now I've got this riff laying over here that I liked. Now David Lynch rejects me on the, on the movie theme that I handed him. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this song. Well, then D-Day comes. I have to record this song on this one particular day. All the rest of the band, as I said before, is on vacation. No one's in town. I'm by myself. And it's just me and my buddy Tommy, who you just heard from, in a studio, a small project studio. And in that one day, what you hear is was what came out of that one day session. Everything, the vocals, the parts. Okay, so I handed it and he loves the song. Great. I'm happy. Now I'm just going to be a Dave Lynch movie. In a million years, I never could have guessed it would not only be a hit song and very successful, but a song that the Smashing Pumpkins would still be playing and we will be playing on the on the upcoming tour. So that really blew my mind. Um, and that just shows you how sometimes things happen. It's so random. Uh, but I was on a good roll then and I certainly was feeling the song. I love playing the song. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's everything from people get married to the song to, you know, I've walked into a couple strip bars in my life and somebody's dancing to the song. Not that you boys have ever been in a strip bar, but, you know, it's got a certain ambiance to it. It has a certain ambiance. It's one of my favorite songs from your catalog. And I have to be completely honest with you. I have no idea what the song's actually about. To me, it's kind of like an angsty, like an unrequited love type of thing. That's just me. We all bring our own stuff to the music. Kyle, and how I, we I figured it. you'd feel like a little bit of connection with it because of my interpretation. There's so much self-loathing. And oh, everyone yes. loves Kyle except for Kyle. So that's what it is. <laughs> that's the problem. But uh, that's my interpretation is it's this just feeling unworthy. And there's obviously an addiction element to it and it and it feels like it could be plugged into a, a lot of your other work as far as how it would fit in certain other albums and so I, i'm wondering if that is always if we only had the process. guy who wrote it here with us well I, exactly I but if you could if you yeah, thought it could I, fit I, I do think there's an addictive element i think that love um uh miscast can be something that you don't know how to grapple with you know like if you look at the lyrics i lie wait i stop i hesitate i am i breathe i'm not you know, it's just the confusion of like you're in love with somebody or you think you're in love with somebody and you don't know how to get through to them. So you end up turning, kind of turning on yourself. Um, and that's what I get all these years later in singing the song is that's the sort of enduring feeling that there's a sort of emptiness sometimes when you feel like you're in love and there's a confusion. Is this love? Is, it, is this what love is supposed to feel like? Am I the one who's not living up to the vision? And certainly if you've ever been in a relationship that's not going well, those types of things are haunting. You know, it, it has a sort of haunting quality. I certainly can say from my own life experiences that nothing is more haunting than being in a relationship and feeling more lonely than you would feel if you were alone. Because <laughs> at least if you're alone, you can go out and just sort of hang out and talk to some people and you feel like all your options are in front of you. When you're in a relationship and it's not going the way you want, and I was in one of those relationships at the time, you feel trapped. And in that, I felt super isolated and super alone. And for me, coming from a background of so much uh, abuse as a child, that then triggers all this other stuff in me where it's like, 
I really do feel trapped. And that may have nothing to do with my partner. That just may be all the stuff I'm bringing into a relationship. And also, this song was kind of on the tail end in between melancholy and adore. And to me, it has much more of an adore vibe. So was this kind of like a transitionary song where you're like, that hit, I get a vibe from it. I'm going to run with that now. That's a great point. You know, technically speaking, it's the end of the melancholy era that the song was done. So it technically speaking is a melancholy song, but it really in spirit is adore. And what was so confusing about that and uh, I've talked about this many times, but I can maybe shed some different light on it here, was we had had a song on, and it was obviously our first kind of classic spotlight song in episode one of 1979. That was a huge, huge hit, very electronic in its basis. Now you have I, very electronic, very little guitar in it. So in a short period of time, you know, I guess about a year or so, I've got two really big hit songs that are very electronic based. So in my mind, when I made the Adore album, I'm thinking, okay, I can definitely kind of pursue this vibe a little further than I have. I don't have to be as reliant on, let's say, heavy music as I had been up to that point. And the the negative reaction to the album being voiced more along the electronic, right? In my mind, it was more of an electronic folk album. Uh, that was very shocking to me that people were so violently against the record. It was as if the general public had made up its mind that the Smashing Pumpkins was a rock and roll band. As long as we were a rock and roll band and we did some weird music, that was cool. But if we were going to be more of an electronic, experimental band and the heavier stuff was going to go by the wayside, that seemed to engender a super violent reaction. And unless you've actually stood in the middle of that, uh, one thing I would point to quickly is uh, Neil Strauss, who's a, who's a longtime friend, but at that point uh, was working for the New York Times. Most people would know him as the, as the author of The Dirt, uh, the Motley Crue book. Uh, he's also wrote, the, I think, The Game about the pickup artists. A fantastic book. If you get a chance, read anything by Neil. He's a fantastic writer. Anyway, so Neil at that point was a New York Times writer, but I knew him a little bit socially, kind of through Courtney Love's world. And Neil did the, you know, the big New York Times, the Adore album's coming out. It's a big shift. I think the interview came out maybe four to six weeks after the album. And the New York Times actually ran like a pie chart showing the lack of sales on Adore four to six weeks in as opposed to melancholy. The minute that article came out, the record company just ran from me. It was like, it was over. I went from the golden child who was making gazillions of dollars for the label to they stopped answering the phone. I had that experience of literally falling from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain in about a 12 to 18 month span. And it literally went back to that article. It's not Neil's fault. You know, it has a lot to do with the fact that the album didn't have enough sort of radio classics to uh, make it passable in that world at that time. And what's even more ironic is the Adore album has gone on to be one of the most loved albums the band's ever done. And many people rate it as an equal to Siamese as far as a fan favorite. So I've had such strange experiences. And it all goes back again to songs like this, right? Let's trace it back real quick. I got a song called Tear. David Lynch rejects it. I've got a little riff that I wrote for Shaquille O'Neal. I whip it up into a song in, in one day because the Shaquille O'Neal thing doesn't work out to give it to David Lynch. It becomes a big hit song. That gives me the, the sense of like, oh, I got some house money here. I can try to go further with this sound than I already have. And I make an album sort of based around this sort of confidence that I have because of the success I have. It totally blows up in my face and, and nightmares ensue. So that just shows you like a, a quick, how in, intuitive pursuit in the arts, when it pays off like a weird bet in Vegas, you almost start to think, oh, I know what I'm doing. But you actually don't. You don't know anything you're doing. You just get lucky or you're in the right place at the right time. And when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, no one can explain to you what happened because it's the same process that got you over the finish line all those other times. I'll tell you one quick story because we were talking before about my mother. Feels like the song's a self-fulfilled prophecy. A little bit about love that might be unrequited, might not be right. And yet somehow I, I'm loving the fact that this comes full circle for you. Well, let me tell you one quick story about my mother. Um, again, it would have been her 75th birthday on the day we're recording this today. 
I was bragging one time about how I made a certain amount of money because of something I'd done. And my mother said, I can't believe they pay you all that money for one song. And I said, they don't pay you all that money for one song. They pay you all that money because you can do it again. And in that particular period, I did it again and again and again to where I started to think that I couldn't mess up. And so when, when the sand ran out of the hourglass, which it did not too long after, after I, you know, I, I found myself sort of wandering in a desert that I was not prepared for because up to that point, everything I'd done that I'd taken risks on, I was rewarded for. Do you think that you were just ahead of the curve when you adjusted your sound to that more electronic sound? Because there's so much of it now. Do you think that, like, were audiences just not ready for that at that time? Since people can go back and look at the album with, you know, so much reverence I think it's a combination of, yes, we were ahead of our time uh, in terms of production and style, and that's borne out over time. Some of the biggest fan favorites that we play in concert now are songs like I and Ava Dore, which was the single that would follow I not too long after in 1998. But I also think it had a lot to do with people had a hard time getting out of a particular lane. If you were an alternative rock band, that's all you were. That's all you could be. If you were into country, that's all you could be. Uh, Garth Brooks famously made an album where he changed his name to, I think it was to Chris Gaines, and he wore a wig, and he was like an alternate personality. Well, why do you think I was playing forms of an alternate personality through Zero and Glass? Because I felt like the world kept saying, no, no, you've got to be smaller than you are, not bigger than you are. And my artistic impetus was success made me want to take more chances, not less. And that's why I always say the music business is full of sociopaths because they put their finger up in the wind. They go, oh, people love me for this. I'm going to give more and more and more and more of that. And that's how people end up being cliches in themselves. And listen, there are cliches in the business that I'm in that are very, very, very well rewarded for being cliches. So I cannot cast any shade on them. I'm kind of the counter cliche, but in that, I guess I become my own cliche. (laughs) Billy Corgan, his own cliche. It's not a a good podcast name, but here we are. Do we have merch yet? Because that could be the first merch. Kyle is his own cliche. That's different. We have a saying in the National Wrestling Alliance, Kyle's going to Kyle. And if you get to know Kyle, which you will through this podcast series, you'll understand what that means. Kyle's going to Kyle. It basically just means I'm going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, but it's going to be from the best good place hearted. I could have intended that's, that's, to be. That's why we can say Kyle's going to Kyle, because it comes from a good place. <laughs> but then you have songs like this that we just listened to, like I, where it comes from like so, such a sad Do you think, wait, stop, let me stop place. you, because and then if you, uh, the reason I wanted you guys here is not only are we work compatriots, and I, and, I, and, I, and I love you as people, but also, you know, in many ways, you represent a lot of the general public who has a kind of uh, a tangential relationship with my music. I wouldn't say you guys are like the deep, deep dive fans. The reason I didn't want deep, deep fi- fans here because I wanted you guys to ask me these types of questions. I don't think it's a sad song. Not at all. Really? really? To me, it has that angstiness to it, and it puts me in a place that kind of makes me think it's the middle of the night. I'm alone. There might be a little bit of moonlight in the sky. It's kind of romantic, kind of dark, kind of gothy. And in my mind, it ties so deep in, like I mentioned before, and I don't know why it ties into like addiction and all kinds of other things. And so there is, to me, it has that darkness to it. At the risk of sounding kind of um, religious here, I think one of the things that attracts people to me as a personality on the musical and artistic side is I'm able to express a particular feeling, what you guys would say would be dark or the vibe, and and I'm not offended at all. I see it more as a triumph. In essence, to be able to articulate those feelings, it's more of a song of survival. In essence, the person is able to articulate these things because they have enough of a brain that they haven't lost their mind. If I told you the circumstances of the, that went into this song and I told you the circumstances of my life, which hopefully one day I'll write this book, you guys would be like, no, this is actually a, this is a positive that you're actually still standing here talking about these things. And I think I've known many, many people in my life who've struggled with different forms of addiction, whether it's food or gambling or, or drugs or sex or even rock and roll. 
the reason they're attracted to people like me, I think, is because they see me as a survivor in it, not a victim in it, which is why I always like to say I'm not a victim. And I don't think the Smashing Pumpkins music is a music of victimhood. And I'm not saying you guys are saying this, but oftentimes that's projected on us. The Cure gets a similar vibe, like, oh, it's a bunch of sad Fs. You know what I mean? I think for people who are OG goths like me, we don't see it that way. We actually see it as a sort of a, it's a form of resistance. We, the, the black clothes and the black vibe is the way to say, stay the heck away from me because I, I need that to survive. I can't sort of operate in your world the way you want me to operate. What do most people do? They cope with outside things. We, they find people that kind of confirm them, hashtag their way through life kind of thing, right? Most people who are very sensitive people, they have to navigate the, the inner world of their feelings. And that's why I said this song is more haunting about trying to survive an addictive relationship. And so I see it one more as survival. And if you look at the music at the end, it's more triumphant than defeatist. I think you just summarized exactly why this podcast needs to exist and why we wanted to have these conversations with you. Because as somebody who creates content for the masses, uh, it's easy to misinterpret it. And everybody kind of brings their own experiences, their own life and their own interpretation of things. So to be able to put it on the record and say, listen, if you're feeling this way about it, there's this other version of it that also exists. I mean, are you good with the fact that people will always kind of look at something you've made and make it? I'm totally cool with it. Here's the image that I have in my mind. Go stand in an art gallery sometime. And I'm talking like, you know, the Art Institute of Chicago or the Louvre in Paris. Just pick a great painting, put yourself behind where people would stand and watch the painting and just watch people come and look at the painting. It's a Rembrandt, right? It's not a question of whether Joe Galley or Kyle Davis or Billy Corgan likes it. The world is sort to decide this is a masterpiece. Step back and watch how people actually interface with the masterpiece. One guy will come up, look at it for three seconds, look at his, uh, look at his watch or his phone and walk off. Somebody will sit there for an hour and just gaze at it. To me, it's about engagement. So great work uh, will engage people. How they engage is totally not my business. All I can do in this particular instance and in realm, uh, <laughs> it's a bit broad for a podcast, but this in the, in the realm of 33 of the podcast is to illuminate for you the way I perceive it. But I have no skin in the game for how people perceive. This is why the characters exist. It's meant to confuse and, and sort of throw up smoke screens so that you can't actually get to the heart of the artist. And that's a discussion we'll have at another time. I think that's a great place to leave it right there. Kyle Davis, I know you got some plugs ready for us to talk about where fans can find all of our great content that we have online, our website, and all that other good stuff that people could go and enjoy this podcast anywhere and everywhere. I mean, lyrics, featured songs, all sorts of stuff we're going to be putting on a WPC33.com. Click on that. Save it to your favorites. Go check that out. Wherever you listen to podcasts, via Apple, Spotify, iHeart, anywhere you find all these things, make sure you subscribe, click on it, like, rate, make it happen. The more people know, the more we get to bring this to you. Joe, I'm happy to be here. Billy, thank you for sharing with us. What do you got for us right here at the end? Well, you're asking sad people to click on things, and that's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) They'll get over it. We love you. We love you, and we hope you're enjoying the show. This is a big dive off the cliff for me to go super deep into my work, but I know that there are people out there that are interested, and so that inspires me. So thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Wow. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.